Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16 through verse 23. This is God's word to us this morning. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Father, we read this today knowing that these are your words, that they are true words, that they are words that we need to hear, words that are meant to focus our faith on Christ. I pray that you would illuminate the truth of your scripture to us this morning. Speak to our hearts by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would do this for your glory, and we pray it in your name, O Christ. Amen. In 1678, there was a man whose name was John Bunyan, and he was imprisoned in Bedfordshire, which is in East England, and he was put there because he was preaching the gospel without a license. Back in those days, you had to be certified by the Church of England, otherwise it was illegal to gather people together and teach the Bible. While he was in prison there, he wrote what is often considered to be the first novel in the English language. It's been translated since that time into over 200 languages. It was an allegory of the, of the Christian life, and it was titled The Pilgrim's Progress. Have any of you ever read that before? Let's raise your hand real briefly. Some of you have. Well, as the story goes, there's a man whose name is Christian. See how that works there? It's an allegory. Real transparent and simple, okay? This man whose name was Christian lives a miserable life because he has a massive burden on his back that he cannot get relief from, and he lives in a city that is called the City of Destruction. And this man, Christian, who bears this heavy burden, who lives in this town called Destruction, reads in a book that his city is destined for judgment. It is going to be destroyed, the City of Destruction. You see how this is working? You track in here with his his allegory? But this book tells him about a celestial city, a heavenly city, And it tells him about the good king who lives there. And so Christian flees the city of destruction, seeking to escape that judgment that is coming and seeking to find relief from this burden that is on his back. And right away, Christian meets a man called Evangelist. And this man, Evangelist, points him in the right direction and tells him that he can be set free from his burden. And Evangelist instructs this man on the path that he must go on if he wants to reach the final destination of the celestial city. So Christian listens to Evangelist, and soon he is set free from this burden 
on his back, he comes to a cross, and as the shadow of the cross falls across him, the burden falls from his back. So Christian rejoices, and he quickens his pace to the heavenly city. But along the way, along this journey, Christian will meet many different trials, many different temptations, and many different enemies, traps. He meets a man called Mr. Worldly Wiseman. He meets another person called Mr. Legality, another whose name is Formalist, another whose name is Mr. Hypocrisy. He will be briefly detained by the giant named Despair. And he will briefly travel alongside of a man whose name is Ignorance. He will come across someone who is called the Flatterer. All of these different trials and temptations and difficulties Christian will face. And at several points along this journey, Christian will need the evangelist to come alongside him again and remind him of his marching orders and set him back on his original path. Now, Bunyan's tale of the Pilgrim's Progress is gripping in part because it so clearly weaves the truths of Scripture together into this story. But it's partly so compelling and has become famous all throughout the world because his tale follows so closely our experience as we go through our journey as pilgrims on our way to the heavenly city. We who have received the good news and been set free from our sin are also on a dangerous Journey And along the way, there is no shortage of dangers that you and I could fall prey to. No shortage of deceptions and errors and pitfalls and traps and enemies that must be faced. And dangers we must avoid if we want to make it safely home. The Apostle Paul, here in the book of Colossians, functions or plays the part of the evangelist. The one who tells us how we can be set free from the burden of sin. And how we must go on the journey to heaven. Paul declares the good news of Christ's supremacy and his sufficiency. And Paul warns us not to be taken in by deception. To not be, not be taken in by inferior false teaching. If you look back before our text in chapter 2. If you look at verses 6 through 8. You'll find that Paul has already set forth his main concern for the people at this church in Colossae. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is Paul's concern for the people who originally read this letter. And it's God's concern for you and me, which is why this letter has been preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. We must continue holding fast to Christ. We must continue trusting in Him and Him alone as the all-sufficient Savior. We have to keep believing that Jesus is all we need, that He is the one who makes us complete, that he is the one who secures salvation for us through his work on the cross. We must continue resting in the fact that we are united with Christ through faith and that the inner transformation we need is only possible through his divine power. The change, the forgiveness, the victory is found in Christ. And if we're going to hold on to this, it means we need to be careful to avoid being deceived and taken captive by anyone who claims something different. That you need Jesus and. 
that you need Jesus plus. We need to beware of false teachers who would tell us that Jesus is not sufficient, that he is not enough, and we need something more. Our text this morning, verses 16 through 23, Paul offers three examples of the kinds of things that he's concerned about. The danger of legalism, the danger of mysticism, and the danger of asceticism. Three aspects of the false teaching that these Colossians were encountering. Three dangers that I must tell you this morning still lurk along the pathway as we travel as pilgrims today. We must reject these inferior false teachings that fail to hold fast to Christ as sufficient and supreme. So I want us briefly this morning to consider these three errors. The first is I want you to consider the inferiority of legalism. The inferiority of legalism. We find this in verses 16 through 17. Therefore, Paul says, in light of the fact that Christ is supreme, in light of the fact that what he has done is sufficient, in light of the fact that we need to continue in him and avoid false teaching, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. I think in our culture today, Many of us have an allergy to judgment and judgmentalism. We know that that's just kind of socially unacceptable. And we don't like being around critical people who tell us that we're wrong about everything. But Paul's talking about something more here than just people who have a critical spirit. He means don't let someone else exclude you and say that you don't belong. This is an official sort of judgment. A judgment that comes with authority to tell you where you stand. He says, don't allow the judgment of these legalistic people, people who hold fast to these laws, don't allow their judgment to hold any sway in your heart and mind. Don't let them bully you. Don't let them intimidate you into thinking that you're missing something and that you are outside of the fold unless you hold to these certain regulations. What specific regulations does Paul have in mind? Well, he lists two of them here, specifically issues of food, and drink. That's the first issue, the matter of their diet. Apparently, there were some in Colossae who were demanding that these Gentile believers in the church abstain from specific foods and and beverages as a necessary step to being right with God. And that's the key. They were holding up these laws as a necessary step to, to being made right with God and staying right with God. A necessary step to making spiritual progress and experiencing spiritual growth. The second thing these people were requiring was the observance of specific holy days. He mentions them with regard to a festival. That would be an annual celebration like the, Pasto, like the Passover or, or other things like that. With a new moon, that's a monthly celebration. Or with the Sabbath, that's a weekly celebration. So whether it's year by year, month by month, or week by week, there were some who were demanding that people observe these specific holy days. Now, what's wrong with dietary restrictions and holy days? Because some of you have read your Old Testament, and you know that these things were instructed to the people of God. Yes, these things do originate in the Old Testament, But that was under the old covenant. And with the coming of Christ, Paul will show us, things have changed. Jesus himself spoke to the issue of food and holy days in the Gospels. And there is a fundamental change that comes about with the arrival of Jesus. He declares all foods to be clean in Mark chapter 7. And declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. When we get to the book of Acts, 
Christ will show Peter through this vision that the dietary restrictions of unclean and clean, only being allowed to eat certain things, that those dietary restrictions are no longer binding. The apostles in Acts 15, dealing with controversy, how should Jews and Gentiles worship together? Do the Gentiles need to abide by all of our Jewish regulations? The apostles chose not to lay the responsibility of keeping these regulations on the Gentile believers of these holy days. But the false teachers ignore what Christ has said, ignore the teaching of the apostles, and instead are requiring that these Gentile believers keep these Old Testament Jewish laws in order to be real Christians. That is their error. And this is legalism. This is believing that God accepts us based on our keeping of the law, based on our obedience, that we can somehow earn and keep the approval of God through our adherence to specific rules and regulations. But Paul says, you need to reject such demands. Don't let them burden you with that. Don't let them stand in judgment over you. And he equips them to dismiss this judgment and deflect the social pressure they were applying by explaining the error of that false teaching. He gives the explanation for his advice in verse 17. He says, these, referring to these laws and restrictions, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You see, these false teachers failed to recognize that these Old Testament feasts and ceremonies were of a certain quality. He says they are a shadow, a shadow. He doesn't demean them and say that they were wrong or that they were bad. No, their purpose was good, but their purpose was temporary. Their purpose was to point ahead to something that was more solid, something that was more real. Christ is what all of these things were meant to foreshadow. He says the substance, the reality, belongs to Christ. And this is why the ceremonial laws are no longer binding. Because Christ is here, and Christ is better, and Christ was the purpose of those things to begin with. Now that Christ has come, he has fulfilled this shadowy symbolism from the Old Testament ceremonial law. Therefore, these ceremonial regulations are no longer Necessary. The same thing is said elsewhere in the New Testament about the sacrifices of the law. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The point of Hebrews 10.1 is that those old sacrifices were never effective. They pointed to Christ, and now that Christ has come, he is the once and for all sacrifice. We no longer need those sacrifices. They were a shadow of the good things to come. The same thing is said about the furnishings of the tabernacle in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. He says, these things, the, the ark of the covenant and the lampstand and the table and the laver, he says, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They correspond to something that is more real, something that is greater. So Colossians tells us, to bring it back to this book, that Christ is in us and we are in Christ, which means we have the real thing. We have Christ. We have the substance. So we no longer need the temporary preview. 
I'm not a huge movie buff, but I have friends who are, and I have a couple friends who are excited to see this new superhero movie. It's one of the Avengers movies, right? And the previews are out. You can watch the little preview. Now, once you see the real movie, the preview is probably less exciting for you, right? Because you have the real thing. There's a temporary thing that points ahead to get us excited about what's to come. But once you get your movie tickets and you're in the theater, don't be on your phone watching the preview while the movie's going on. You have the real thing. And that's Paul's point here, that these regulations are a temporary foreshadowing of something to come, and the substance is Christ. And because of this, if we go back and try to keep those temporary regulations, we're really giving up our freedom and being taken captive, to use his language in chapter 2, verse 8. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes to those believers, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has come to fulfill the law, and we are no longer under all of these regulations. In other places, Paul will point out that if some people want to uphold these traditions of certain diet and holy days, he says, more power to you. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's a matter of personal freedom. And we cannot bind the consciences of everyone and force them to observe these requirements. In 1 Corinthians 8.8, Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. He says, listen, you're free to do that, but it doesn't really make a difference in terms of your acceptance before God. Your acceptance before God depends on Christ and on his work. It doesn't depend on keeping the law. Their key error was that they minimized Jesus Christ, failing to see him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament types and shadows. And they were seeking to burden these Gentile believers with regulations that were no longer necessary. So why is this such a dangerous teaching? Some of you may say, I, I've never really cared that much about holy days or diet. Does this apply to me? I think it does apply to us. Here's the thing. This is such a deceptive tendency to fall into legalism, that we jump through certain hoops in order to be made right with God. And it's dangerous because it appeals to our pride. It appeals to our instinct to try and achieve, to try and better ourselves, to try and build a tower to heaven by our own efforts, just like the foolish people at Babel. But this is counter to the gospel that we've received. Romans 3 verse 28 says, We hold that one is justified, that is declared righteous before God, by faith apart from the works of the law. This is the error of many cults that teach you must do certain things in order to be saved. This is the error of modern-day Judaism, which teaches you must fulfill the law in order to be right with God. This is the error of Roman Catholicism that teaches you must do good works in order to be justified, that faith is not enough. But Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. We must reject legalism because Christ 
is the substance. Christ is the reality that the shadows portray because we know that salvation is not obtained by our keeping the law. It's obtained by Christ keeping the law and fulfilling it on our behalf. So we have to reject the error of legalism. But secondly, we also must reject the error of mysticism. Paul shows us the inferiority of mysticism in verses 18 and 19. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So again, Paul exhorts them. This time intensifying the same warning from verse 16. Earlier he said, let no one pass judgment on you. This time he he intensifies that same idea. He's not bringing up a different thing, but doubling down on what he's already said. He says, let no one disqualify you. This word for disqualify has the idea of an umpire or a referee ruling that you are out of bounds. Like a line judge in a football game or the umpire calling you out at home plate. He says, don't let anyone tell you where you stand before God. Why? Because Paul will show us they don't have that kind of authority. And they are using the wrong criteria. Paul gives us a description of these false teachers again. He says that they are insisting on asceticism. What does this mean? If you have a different uh, version of the Bible on your lap, if you have the New American Standard Version, you'll see that that translation renders this phrase that these people are delighting in self abasement. I think that even the NIV get, gets right at the idea of it, saying that they are delighting in false humility. The emphasis here is not that the false teachers are necessarily imposing these standards on them, but rather that they are overly impressed with themselves and looking down on the Colossians with an attitude of superiority and ruling them to not be part of the inner circle because they haven't experienced these things that these false teachers have. And this is a common human problem. If these people are insisting on asceticism, which is, which is denying yourself certain comforts, denying yourself earthly pleasures, making life hard for yourself, delighting, it's, it says in the NASB, in false humility, these things look really good to other people. There's a really big difference between looking humble or acting humble and actually being humble. Maybe some of you have seen that in others or recognize that tendency in yourself, that it's possible to say all the right things and do all the right things on the outside because you really, really want other people to think that you're humble. But inside, in your heart, exactly the opposite is the case. Paul says that's what's going on with these people. They're insisting on asceticism. They're delighting in self-abasement, false humility. This false humility is paired with the worship of angels. And this might seem random to you, but I think these things are connected. I think it's unlikely that angels were the object of their worship. When it says the worship of angels, I don't think he means that they're literally worshiping angels intentionally. Um, These errors seem to have a very Jewish flavor and Israel throughout their history has been radically monotheistic. We know that in the Ten Commandments it says, you shall have no other gods before me. In the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, it says the Lord is one, and we're to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You'll even find instances where angels appeared and people fell down in fear and started to worship them. They said, no, 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 don't worship me, but worship God. 
I don't think that they were necessarily intending to elevate angels to the level of God. It's more likely that they are seeing themselves as entering into the company of the angels in their worship. Or perhaps that they see the angels as somehow being intercessors between them and God. And so they worship God, in a sense, through the angels. Now, that sounds really humble, doesn't it? To say that we are entering into the company of the angels and that we don't presume to speak directly to God. No, we, we need to talk to the angels and they'll talk to God for us because we are so lowly, we can't even speak to God directly. He's so far above us and so far beyond us, we could never presume to do that. So instead, we'll pray to and through the angels. Maybe that sounds a little bit familiar. It's somewhat like the Roman Catholic practice of praying to the saints or to Mary, thinking that they will pass on our requests to God. But this idea is completely unbiblical. In chapter 1, verse 20, we see that we are reconciled to God and have union with him through Christ, not through angels. In chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, through him, through Christ, it says that God has been pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. In chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that you have been filled or made complete in him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Scripture doesn't teach us that we need angels to be made right with God or to communicate with him. We have union with God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So if scripture doesn't teach us to pray to or through angels, if scripture doesn't teach us that we need to jump through all these hoops of denying ourselves certain things and making ourselves seem really humble in order to really have fellowship with God, then where are these people getting this information? Why are they insisting on this? Notice Paul points out they're going on in detail about visions. Very simply put, these people have the wrong authority. Rather than trusting in the teaching of Christ and the apostles and the written word, they are putting the authority in their subjective experience, something they claim to have seen and felt that gives them these ideas of the fact that this is how they should worship. But this is the wrong authority. This is subjective and personal and unverifiable. And Paul's tired of them. You almost see his kind of sarcasm that they're going on and on in detail about these visions. He's like, get over it. That's not what it's all about. And the irony is that this is not humble. These people are overly impressed with themselves. They want to look really humble on the outside. But somehow they're positioning themselves as the experts. We are the ones who have really arrived. We are the ones who are on the inner circle. We are the ones who have entered into the company of the angels. And if you're really lucky, maybe someday you can be like us. This is not humble at all. Ironically, their attitude and behavior is the opposite of Paul's experience. The apostle Paul really did have a vision in 2 Corinthians 12. He speaks about being caught up into heaven. But he was forbidden to talk about it. He didn't go on and on in detail about all the things he had seen. And rather than being proud, he says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. So that he wouldn't be exalted by, the, by that vision that he had had. But these people, Paul points out, are puffed up. Notice how he describes them. Puffed up in verse 18. That's proud. Without reason. So he doesn't buy the fact that they've actually seen anything. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. These people claiming to be spiritual, 
He says, are sensuous. This is the word in Greek for flesh. They're carnal. They're fleshly. They're worldly, even though they're claiming to be on a higher spiritual plane. And Paul doesn't buy what they are selling. He says, they try to look humble, but they're puffed up. They claim to have a spiritual connection with angels, but he says that these ideas come from their own minds. They want to look spiritual and mature, but they're carnal and fleshly and unspiritual. But what's their key error? He points it out. They are not holding fast to the head, not holding fast to Christ. Again, in verse 19, he brings it back to Jesus, saying these people are reaching for something and holding on to something that's not Jesus. And so it doesn't matter how these errors evolve or change or morph over time. You can always tell false teaching because it takes you away from Christ. It leads you away from Christ. He says Christ is the head. What does that mean? Head means authority. Head means the source of life. He says Christ is our authority, not their visions, not their claims. He says Christ is the source of spiritual life and growth, not angels. They've abandoned Christ in favor of something else. Those claiming that the Colossians are disqualified, again, here's the the, the irony. Those who are claiming that all you people are unqualified, Paul says that they're the ones who are disqualified because they're not holding fast to Christ. They are out of bounds. Friends, we need to beware of those who will come to us and say, God told me when their Bible is closed. We need to beware of that, that trump card that people play. You need to think something or believe something and do something because I'm telling you something that God told me. There are too many people today who claim special revelation from God and then try to use it authoritatively to tell other people what to do and what to believe and how to think. But here's the thing. That is nothing more than a means to seek control over others. It's nothing more than a tactic to manipulate you and control you into doing and thinking what those people want you to do. Such claimed visions have been a source of confusion and false teaching in the church from the day of Paul all the way up to our own day. This is how Mormonism began. This is how Islam began. There's no shortage of people claiming today, claiming to have died and gone to heaven and then returned. Then conveniently, they always write a book and make a lot of money off of that. Have you noticed that? But the common sense wisdom that we need to apply is this. If a supposed vision or supposed prophecy disagrees with Scripture then it's incorrect. Point point blank. It's incorrect if it disagrees with the revealed word of God. But in addition, if a claimed vision or prophecy agrees with Scripture, then watch this. It's unnecessary. We don't need it. People come along and tell us something that conflicts with Scripture. We go, well, you didn't get that from God wherever you got it. If they tell us something that's already written on the page, then we just say, yeah, we already knew that and we didn't need your vision. Thanks. Have a nice day. It has no sway, no position of authority in the church. Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the preeminent preachers of the previous century, said this in a sermon on the Holy Spirit. It's titled the paraclete, which is a big word that means the comforter, the title for the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon doesn't pull any punches, and so I'll let him offend you this morning so that way I can dodge the bullets, okay? Here's what he wrote. He says, take care never to impute the vain imaginings of your fancy to him the Holy Spirit. I have seen the Spirit of God shamefully dishonored by persons, I hope they were insane, who have said that they have had this and that revealed to them. 
There has not for some years passed over my head a single week in which I have not been pestered with the revelations of hypocrites or maniacs. Semi-lunatics are very fond of coming with messages from the Lord to me, and it may spare them some trouble if I tell them once for all that I will have none of their stupid messages. Never dream that events are revealed to you by heaven, or you may come to be like those idiots who dare impute their blatant follies to the Holy Ghost. If you feel your tongue itch to talk nonsense, trace it to the devil, not to the Spirit of God. Whatever is to be revealed by the Spirit to any of us is in the Word of God already. He adds nothing to the Bible and never will. Let persons who have revelations of this and that and the other go to bed and wake up in their senses. I only wish they would follow this advice and no longer insult the Holy Ghost by laying their nonsense at his door. Um, Brother Charles here doesn't pull any punches. And I agree with him. I agree with him. Friends, we need to reject mysticism. Even if it comes in Christian dress, even if people claim to be speaking on behalf of God, because Christ is the supreme authority in the church, and we have his word. Hold fast to him. Christ is the source of life and progress. We don't need mystical experiences, whether our own or those of other people, in order to have fellowship with God. We are complete in Christ, and we lack nothing else. Peter tells us that we've been granted everything that we need for life and godliness. So don't let anyone disqualify you and tell you that you're missing out because you're not in the new secret club that got the new secret message from God. That is the inferiority of mysticism. But there is a third aspect to this error, and that's the inferiority of asceticism. Verse 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This big word asceticism means the denial of physical or psychological desires in order to attain a spiritual ideal or goal. This is like the monk who hides himself away in a cave, wears rough clothing, scourges himself on the back, eats the worst food, never builds a fire, and thinks that he's more holy because he suffers, doing without, inflicting difficulty on himself in order to attain a higher spiritual level. Now, we do know that discipline and self-denial are a key aspect of following Christ, we can see that in the Gospels. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. You must lay down your life and lose it. And we may need to set aside anything in this life in order to follow Christ. There are many who have suffered for Christ and done without all the comforts of life in order to bring the gospel to the lost. And that is to be praised and commended. And God may call many of us to do the same thing. But the false teachers had created a false dichotomy. You know what that means? A false dichotomy is, is, is where you're kind of putting things in two categories and saying everything is like this, and this is always good, and this is always bad. But it's not true. The false teachers made this false dichotomy that anything physical is bad. The body, food, pleasure, comfort, and only the things that are spiritual are good. But this is dualism, and it's a wrong philosophy of life, and it's not biblical. 
And Paul shows us why in these verses. The third appeal that Paul makes here is not a direct exhortation. He doesn't say, don't let them judge you, don't let them disqualify you. This time, he asks a question. And it's one of those if-then statements. He, He starts with the if part in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. This is the question. It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, listen, guys, think through this with me. I mean, think about this for a moment. If this is true of you, if you have died with Christ, we get to the then statement, and it's a more expanded version of it then. He says, if, in verse 20, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, then, you could kind of insert there, then why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? What are the elemental spirits of the world? Verse Verse um, 20 here. Well, back in, in verse 8, Paul's already mentioned this. It's kind of a tricky phrase to understand, but it means the basic elements of the world, like water, wind, and fire, which often people thought had sort of these pagan deities or spiritual powers behind them. Or perhaps referring to the sun, moon, and stars, these elemental forces, powers that many people worshipped. He says, why are you so focused on all the things in the world if you are dead to that? In, in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 2, look at what Paul has already said. He says, in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says, listen, I've already reminded you and taught you that if you believe in Christ, if you're united with him through faith, then the old you died. You've been buried with him in baptism. And there's a new you that is alive today with Christ, raised with him to newness of life. Which means for us, if we go back to chapter 1, we've switched teams. We've switched kingdoms. In verse 13 of chapter 1, it says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have a new master. We have a new king. We live by a new system of rules. We're under a different law than that which we used to be under. And Paul says this is a reality for all who have been saved. There's been this great and gracious reversal of our status. We were once spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved to sin and Satan, but now we've been made spiritually alive, which means we are dead to sin and free from bondage. It has no claim on our souls anymore. So this then statement, he says, why do you submit to things that no longer have any power over you. You used to worship all those other things. You used to try to keep all these laws, but you're dead to that now. You're no longer under the law, but under grace. You're no longer under the power of worldly authorities. You're under the freeing rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? What it means is that submitting to these things is unnecessary. It says, listen, you guys are trying to obtain something that you already have. Why submit to all these rules to try to get Christ? When you already have Christ. He says submitting to these things is illogical. He says you're trying to obtain a spiritual status by using earthly means. He says all these things perish as they are used. These false teachers were saying do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Talking likely about things like food and other stuff like that. He's like listen, just, this is the logic that Jesus used in, in Mark 7. He says, it's not what comes into your body that defiles you. I mean, you eat food, and then later you 
eliminate it. I mean, you get rid of it. That's not what makes a person unclean. It's what comes out of the heart that makes someone unclean. And so to try to attain spiritual status with such earthly, simple, temporary means, well, that's illogical. And the bottom line, Paul says, is besides all that, submitting to these regulations is ineffective. It doesn't even work. He says it may look good. It may feel impressive. He says in verse 23, it has an appearance of wisdom. But notice what he says. It has no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. It lacks power. It lacks power. What Paul's not doing here is denigrating holiness or saying that if we have a spiritual connection with Christ, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. That's not what he's saying. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we must glorify God with our bodies. In Galatians 5.13, he says we are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul's point is not that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Paul's point here is that the battle against your sin The battle against the desires of the flesh. That's a battle we need to fight, but this is not how it's fought. These are useless tactics in gaining victory over the sin that dwells in our hearts. The battle against sin is not merely external. It goes to the heart, as we'll see uh, next time in Colossians. If you look down in chapter 3, he says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The battle against sin is a battle against what is in us. It is not a matter of making sure we don't touch or taste or handle certain foods, certain things. That is not the path to victory over sin. The problem, again, is that asceticism, denying ourselves all these external things, is something we can do. It's actually possible to avoid certain foods and to avoid certain drink and to deny yourself certain earthly pleasures That's possible. You can do it in the power of your flesh, but that won't deal with the real problem in the heart. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and selfish indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, what we need is not just to externally clean our lives up. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might think that what it means to be a Christian is, well, I need to go to church, probably put some money in the box, I need to stop saying these words and start doing some good things, and all of that is good, but it comes after something that Christ does in the heart. Something Paul earlier calls the putting off of the body of flesh, this spiritual surgery that Paul calls circumcision. Christ changes the heart. And then good deeds and purity and all that stuff works outward from the heart. Man tries to change the outside in hopes that that will trickle inwards. But that approach is futile. It takes a change of Christ in the heart that then must work its way outwards. There's far more to being a Christian than saying, I won't dance or chew or go go with the girls that do or whatever the, the phrase is, how it goes. Those things are possible to do. You can go jump through all the hoops and be a good person on the outside. And be spiritually dead within. 
and still be a slave to your sin. You can exchange the sin of pornography for the sin of pride and self-righteousness because you're better than those people. You can exchange the sin of drunkenness for the sin of selfishness, pursuing your own uh, status and pleasure in the world at the expense of others without ever touching a drop of alcohol. The problem is in here. The problem is in here. Paul says, if you do all this stuff on the outside, it won't actually help you overcome the selfish desires of the flesh. We'll just be changing out one kind of sin for another. So in summary, we need to reject asceticism because Christ is the key to defeating sin. Christ is the key to accessing a holy God. Our human efforts and worldly tactics have no power. The power of salvation lies in Christ and not in us and our attempts to clean ourselves up. All of these different approaches, they seem wise and they seem to be humble, but they lack power and they reek of pride. They are man-made and completely inferior to what we have in Christ. And therefore, Paul says, they are to be rejected and dismissed. Perhaps some of you here today realize that you have been trying really hard, perhaps, but in vain, to reach heaven. You've been seeking to find the path to the celestial city and to be free of your burden of sin, but you've not been listening to evangelist, the one who preaches the gospel. You've been listening, rather, to Mr. Legality, the one who tells you, keep the law, be good, do all these things, and you will find your way home. Perhaps you've bought into the lies of mysticism. You've been looking for an experience. You've been relying on subjective things, feelings, your senses, to discover God. Perhaps you've been deceived by the claims of asceticism, and you think that if, if you will just suffer enough and impose hardship on yourself and be really disciplined, then you can overcome the sin that you're so addicted to. But friend, let me tell you this morning that only Christ can save you. Only Christ can save. Will you reject the lies that aim to deceive and damn you? Will you repent of your self-reliance, repent of your dependence on the world's wisdom, and instead claim Christ as your own through faith? Today, Jesus invites you to come to him and be free of your burden of sin. Today, he invites you to come and receive entrance into his family and receive the promise of eternal life, eternal life that's purchased not with your good efforts, eternal life that's been purchased by his blood on the cross. Will you come and join us as we're on this journey to the celestial city? Christians, those of you who are holding fast to Christ as head, I hope that you hear the word of God loud and clear today, that legalism is inferior that mysticism is inferior, that asceticism is inferior. See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that you let no one intimidate you or convince you that you're disqualified because all you have is Christ. Friends, all we need is Christ. As we continue on this dangerous journey, walking as pilgrims who have fled the city of destruction, who've been set free from our burdens, let's keep in mind the message of the evangelist. What Paul tells us here in Colossians, that Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient and supreme Savior. And it is in him that we hope and trust. It is on him that we depend and rely. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving.
may we always glory in the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. God, as we read your word today, we praise you and glorify you and thank you that our salvation depends not on us and all of our efforts. It depends on Christ. We thank you that we've been set free from the regulations and the demands of the law because Christ has fulfilled it for us. We thank you, God, that we are not held off at arm's length, but rather you beckon us to come and experience union with you through faith in Christ. You give yourself to us, and we praise you for your grace. Lord, protect us from being distracted or deceived by those who would rob us of the peace and the joy and the freedom that is ours in Christ. And God, for any this morning who don't know you, I pray that they would hear the call of the evangelist, that they would hear the call of the gospel, and that they would believe and enter into the joy and freedom and life that comes through Jesus Christ. Amen.